You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we are going to talk about SIM swapping, the motivations to drive a hacker, and the opportunities that coronavirus is creating for cyber criminals. With me is Allison Nixon. Allison is a security researcher and investigator for Unit 221B. She conducts specialized investigations and legal support for cybersecurity issues. Allison specializes in cybercrime investigations and works with law enforcement to take down hacker gangs and has spent the last couple of years focusing on SIM swap gangs. So Allison, it's great to have you on the program. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Allison, you work for Unit 221B on a team that works to solve the most difficult problems in the field of cybersecurity and a team that has a very diverse skill set. The president and founder, Jaleesa James, studied neuroscience and psychology at graduate school while also pursuing a doctoral program in neuroscience and addiction. Your chief legal officer, Mark Rash, created the United States Department of Justice Computer Crimes Unit. And your chief strategy officer, David Morris, has worked with the NSA, FBI, and the U.S. military. And that's just part of the team. So it seems that every member of your team has not only an impressive list of qualifications, but also each person fills such a unique role. How do you think about these different skill sets and backgrounds, and how do they speak to the different perspectives needed for the work that you do? How do they all contribute differently to the team? Yeah, so Unit 221B as it is, uh, we have actually just started the company. Back in January, I joined the team. We picked kind of a historically crazy time to start a new company, so we're still figuring stuff out. Uh, us as a group, we've known each other for years. Um, we have worked together in various capacities for quite a while. We we just get along really well, and we have a breadth and depth of experience between all of us, uh, such that if we get any kind of weird situation, like a, a contract with some kind of specialized work that needs to be done, we have somebody that has some kind of experience in it. So, uh, for example, Mark Rash, he prosecuted some of the high-profile OG computer crimes, right? Um, He prosecuted Kevin Mitnick. He prosecuted the Morris Worm guy. I've been doing a lot with uh, investigations regarding new types of criminal fraud. So I spent the past couple years on SIM swap investigations when that was new. Before that, I was doing DDoS investigations when there were some pretty high profile DDoS attacks that was causing a lot of problems. And me and some other people were some of the very few people that had visibility into that part of the world. So between all of us, we're kind of, we have really good luck at placing ourselves at the right place at the right time. So we decided at the start of this year to get together and start making money for ourselves rather than some other company, (laughs) basically, have some arrangement where we have equity. So that's why we're all here together, basically. That's fascinating. And yeah, you did start at a unique time, but it's so necessary. I mean, we've seen, you know, a significant increase in at least coronavirus related attacks, you know, we're recording during that time. But, you know, you've described the underground as dangerous in ways that you don't expect. 
and yourself as a researcher, the verifier of leaks, the hunter of humans, even in the world of cybersecurity, this this kind of job description is exciting for people, right? You know, you're not out there running around, you know, with a gun chasing criminals, but you're doing work that's really meaningful and pretty interesting. So can you give us an idea of what your typical workday looks like so we can understand what it means to be a threat researcher and to be that hunter of humans? Oh, yeah, definitely. Let's see. How do I put it? It's kind of complicated because I, I'm always the type of person that has a ton of things going on at the same time. Um, I'm always trying to build foundations because I see a lot of things as building a pyramid or building a building. You have to start with the foundation first. One of the things that I focus on is uh, collecting information. So just uh, getting a sense of what's out there, getting a baseline for what's normal in the criminal community, and looking for any changes to that baseline. That's something that's very important. Another thing that I consider to be a foundation is building connections with people. So one of the big aspects of threat research work that doesn't really get the appreciation it deserves is how much of that work actually relies on relationships with people. For example, say I get some kind of scam victim that comes to me and they need to get some website taken down or some kind of actor's account suspended because they got scammed. In order to accomplish something like this, the threat researcher or investigator has to be able to motivate getting that account taken down. So you usually need to find a security contact at that company because if you're conducting some kind of involved investigation that might be a little bit more complicated than, hey, take down this phishing page, then the abuse email at that company might not be sufficient. So sometimes you have to dig and find these contacts. Um, and sometimes, depending on the different companies, uh, you might need some kind of more detailed assistance. And that's where relationship building really needs to come in. Because a lot of these people at these different companies, they will address abuse, they will do the bare minimum, but unless they like you, they're not really going to go beyond that, right? So a big part of being an effective threat researcher is building these connections at these different companies and getting these people to basically trust you that you're the kind of person that does the right thing. So if they decide to help you out, they don't feel like they're putting themselves at risk or wasting their time. They respond a lot better when they feel like they're being part of something that's doing the right thing, if that makes sense. That does make complete sense. And I think that having that trust of the industry um, and being able to build that rapport, I was explaining to someone um, very recently in the past couple of days who isn't in security. And we were talking about security researchers. And when they come to Microsoft and say, hey, we found a vulnerability and we want to talk about it publicly, but you know, we'll give you the week or two to fix it so that you know, when we do talk about it publicly, people can't exploit it. And they couldn't understand that concept about why a researcher would ever talk publicly about a vulnerability. I said, it's a trust relationship. They, they want to talk about their work, but they give us an opportunity to fix before they go public and so that the attackers can't exploit it. And it was a really interesting, um, at least for me, it was a really interesting window because I spent, like you, I spent my life in cybersecurity. So I forget sometimes that people don't realize what we do over here and why. Yeah, definitely. Like even within the industry, sometimes people have different understandings of things. Like I know that there are threat researchers that don't take the same approach that I do. And when they interact with people at other companies, they're a lot more transactional in their approach. And sometimes I try to help them out. I'm like, you know, hey, you should probably help this person out for free. It'll probably pay you back sometime in the future. And sometimes it's like a different mindset where like somebody might not want to help people out for free because they just don't understand the value that it might bring back. So sometimes this is also just like a fundamental life philosophy kind of thing. Like 
I got started doing this kind of work because I was basically uh, helping harassment victims for free because I thought it was interesting. <laughs> Somebody, like back in around 2013, Somebody got swatted. Well, actually, it was the journalist Brian Krebs that got swatted. And a friend of mine was like, hey, you're looking at all these booter sites on hack forums. You might know who swatted this guy. So he introduced me. And then that was like one of my big entries into this side of the industry because the information that the journalist gave me uh, helped me understand more about this criminal underground that I was somewhat curious about. Because I worked in a, uh, a sock back at that time. So I was curious about like who was sending all, this, all these attacks at our customers. So I started digging and I found all these hacking forums. So the information that the journalist gave me helped me out with understanding better. And then I also helped him out with my findings. And the whole working group around that basically figured out who did it and helped out with the uh, like reporting it to law enforcement. But basically helping someone out for free helped me by understanding the problem better, gaining access to information that I otherwise would never have gotten access to, um, and then also built connections that were really helpful for my career later on. So helping harassment victims out for free is probably one of the best things a starting out threat researcher can do because it's just great on all fronts. Even That sounds weird. <laughs> No, it doesn't sound weird. And you know what? I, I think it makes sense. We, I often talk about how cybersecurity is purpose-driven work, that people who stay in cybersecurity for long-term careers are doing it not just because they, you know, it's financially rewarding or because it's a job. They're doing it because there's something motivating them to do it. Um, but for the sake of our audience who aren't all security professionals, can you define both a SOC? Because I think we have folks that aren't, you know, security professionals, but also swatting in case someone isn't familiar with the concept. Uh, so a SOC is a security operations center. So my job at the time was basically this entry level job. And I found security to be so interesting. So I uh, applied for this entry level job and I got it. And what we did basically was security alerts that came in from various monitoring devices. Um, we would look at the contents of the alert and view the packet capture and determine whether or not it was a false positive and then escalate it to the client if it was a real event that deserved attention. So when I was working in that capacity, I asked myself, like, you know, hey, a lot of this stuff is coming from automated scripts, but somebody made those automated scripts. And I wonder if who made these automated scripts? What are they like? What is their favorite color? Why did they think it was a good idea to attack all of our clients? So that's really what led me down the rabbit hole. Swatting is an interesting form of cyber attack. And this was something that I found interesting for a long time because it's basically the ability to commit physical violence using a cyber attack. And a lot of the online debates about cyber attacks and like, can it kill anybody? Things like that. While those debates were going on, swatting was a phenomenon the entire time. It, like if you ever ask yourself, can a cyber attack kill somebody? I mean, absolutely. There are cyber attacks conducted on the regular for the sake of committing physical violence. Swatting is when people call the police or like they call the local police to the victim and they pretend to be the victim and they're like, hey, I'm victim name. And then they say that they have hostages or guns or bombs or things like that. And they tell this crazy story admitting to all kinds of super serious crimes. And 
all of this is done with the goal of sending a SWAT team to the victim's address. And the SWAT team is going to be like all on hair trigger, expecting that there's some kind of terrible situation going on. Um, but in reality, the victim might not even know that this is happening until the SWAT team shows up. So it's a very frightening kind of attack. Um, people have died from this, uh, maimed from this, and uh, I believe their animals have also died from this in certain instances. Yeah, which is just absolutely terrible. Um, it, it's horrible, actually, because people, when they think about cybercrime, they think about um, loss of IP or they'll think about financial loss, but they typically don't think about loss of life. And there absolutely is a loss of life component that um, in this instance, but also a potential loss of life component. Um, and before we get to swim, SIM swapping, which I know is a topic we have, I want to talk about one other thing um, that's always near and dear to me, which is potential loss of life. You, you hear about attacks, things like people taking over your car, hacking into your car and making it do things, or people taking over um, critical infrastructure like water, energy systems. How do you feel about the way we talk about those type of attacks in the industry? And even, and I'm not, you know, you don't have a crystal ball, but the probability of those type of attacks, because I think for the average person, that's one of the things that they're most concerned about, because it sounds really scary. And then you see it in the movies, right? It's tricky because, like, some of these exotic types of attacks, they're really hard to execute. But when they get reported about in the media, the media either doesn't realize or forgets to mention that, hey, in order to execute this attack, you need to have XYZ crazy level of skill set, or you need to have XYZ privileged access. For example, uh, a lot of the reporting about BGP hijacking and SS7, uh, they kind of omit the fact that you need to have privileged access to execute these attacks, right? You can't just run a script and then suddenly you have control of everything. No, I mean, like to execute a BGP attack, you have to like get contracts and machines that cost thousands of dollars before you can make any BGP announcements. There's a lot of complexity and nuance to different kinds of cyber attacks. On one hand, you've got exotic attacks being overhyped, but then you also have really, really awful damaging attacks on not getting the attention that they need. So like, for example, a lot of phishing attacks and things like that, they cause huge amounts of losses. Uh, romance scams as well is uh, part of that whole ecosystem where uh, threat actors will basically seduce vulnerable people online and then use them as bank account mules. Um, those are some of the most messed up scams that are going on right now and people actually kill themselves because of it. We also see other kinds of attacks that might not be getting the level of attention that they need. Uh, like if there's some kind of hyped up attack about people taking over a power plant, I mean, it's much more likely that the power plant will be hit by ransomware. And we're seeing stuff like that where critical infrastructure is getting hit with ransomware. And the ransomware actors have gotten extremely aggressive. And I mean, the fact that threat actors can operate online and be pretty much invincible in a way uh, where they can be totally anonymous and cause a lot of damage and continue operating for years, uh, just so long as they're careful to use a proxy every time. Um, it's, I mean, I don't say this as some kind of like, oh, we shouldn't allow anonymity because that's not what I mean. What I mean is like this kind of world that we live in where people can do that is, uh, not super comfortable. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, I think we're actually going to see an increase in those type of ransomware attacks, which we're like now, right? We're seeing an increase in ransomware attacks targeted at healthcare 
in the middle of a global pandemic. Attackers know that healthcare will pay. It's the same thing when they're doing ransomware attacks against critical infrastructure. They know there's no choice but to try to get out of the situation. Yeah, exactly. They've been so aggressive. Like, um, actually, there was an article that I kind of had a little bit of beef with because I knew that reality was going to be quite a bit different. Um, there was some news article that someone wrote about ransomware actors calling a truce on medical facilities. I mean, I just, I just didn't, I didn't like that article because that's not how threat actors work. <laughs> um, when they see someone vulnerable in a vulnerable position, they're not going to show them mercy. They're more like sharks. Uh, they smell blood in the water and they're going to get all excited. Well, let's talk about SIM swapping. First, on the topic of SIM swapping, can you define to the audience what that even means? And then what consumers need to do to protect themselves? And if you have a point of view on whether large organizations like banks or people that use, you know, SMS for authentication, if they need to do more to protect consumers. SIM swapping is one of these problems that it really highlights how some of the fundamental infrastructure that we run our entire economy on is poorly maintained and is not even well designed for the purpose that we use them for. So SIM swapping is a form of targeted account takeover fraud where the threat actor steals the phone number of the victim and then uses that phone number to authenticate as the victim. So like think about your online accounts and how you authenticate to whatever websites. Um, Usually username and password is a factor in that. Um, And, well, what if you forget your username and password? Um, Say you have some kind of token assigned to it. Uh, What if you forget your two-factor token? Uh, Ultimately, you will have to issue a password reset against either your email or your phone number. And if you look at your email provider for wherever you keep your main personal email, what if you forget your username and password for that? Well, usually they have you issue a password reset to a backup email or your phone number. And all of it basically traces back to your personal emails and your personal phone number. And if you need to reset your password, it all starts there. So what SimSwalkers do is they take advantage of how the internet ecosystem has evolved, basically. Uh, They realize that your identity documents uh, online are quite a bit different from your identity documents in real life. Like your driver's license might be important, but it's not going to help you recover your email. It's all down to your phone number. And threat actors realize that telcos are not really set up to be identity providers. The product they sell is not intended to be an identity product. There is nothing in your cell contract that says that you just bought an ID. There's nothing in their marketing that claims they're selling you an ID. But De facto, because of these third parties that decide to use it, you have an ID because you have a cell phone number. Um, It's poorly suited for this purpose because cell phone numbers are recycled. They have to be by design because you will run out of cell phone numbers very quick if you don't. Uh, Cell phone numbers are also like the subscriber information associated with them is private for plenty of good historical reasons. But now, once you're using phone numbers as ID, Uh, It's not a very nice feature. Uh, Like if your phone number is stolen and I'm an identity verifier like a bank and I need to make sure that you're not being SIM swapped, I don't have any ability to look up your account info at the telco and make sure that it's still for you and not some random person, right? So, I mean, there's that. And then also 
telcos are set up to be very customer service friendly. So like if you are a customer, uh, you forgot your pin, you forgot everything, but you've got a thousand dollars cash that you're ready to spend at the phone store and you need to upgrade your phone. They're not going to turn you away because you forgot your pin, right? That's just not how their business model works. So having some kind of strong, tough authentication is completely counter to their business model. And it's also counter to like being a proper identity provider. So threat actors have taken advantage of this and used any number of techniques to be able to steal people's phone numbers, uh, regardless of what people try to do with their carrier. Like we've seen time and time again, verifiable stories that uh, the victims have been defrauded and they have not actually committed any security mistakes. So their passwords were perfectly good, things like that, but the security problem was at the provider. So, I mean, a lot of what we were doing was basically hunting down, like, how are they breaking into the telcos? Uh, what kind of capabilities do the threat actors have? And, like, how, how can we counter that? So, I mean, a lot of the work has been basically plugging up flaws in the telcos. Um, but also for these third-party identity verifiers, they also have a part to play in this as well. Um, a lot of third-party identifiers, uh, identity verifiers, they, they require phone number by policy, and they also ban VoIP phone numbers. So, like, VoIP phone numbers cannot be SIM swapped. Um, all these different VoIP providers, they have different business models, and it's quite a bit harder to break into them. So some SIM swap victims try to fall back to these other types of phone numbers, but those kinds of phone numbers are banned from a lot of services for other historically valid reasons, like fake account creation and things like that. Um, if you want to prevent people from making thousands of fake accounts, uh, require them to use a real cell phone number, and then it's going to cost them like 10, 20 bucks uh, every time they want to get a new phone number. So That's fascinating. It's, it's yeah. really a fascinating topic because I don't think, and, you know, when you think about your security research, I know part of what you do is try to educate the public. And I think the general public, I, I often go back to my own family, but I think the general public needs a whole lot more education than they have. I know I spend a lot of time just um, educating my own household on little stuff, right? You know, don't reuse passwords. Don't, you know, don't use the same password everywhere on the internet. Just simple things like that, right? Well, you know, what's really unsatisfying sometimes about the SIM swap work is um, regular people will ask me, hey, what can I do to make myself more secure? And I would tell them, like, remove your phone number from your account. Also, make a fake phone number and use that. Uh, and there's not much else you can do. And it's not super satisfying to sell, tell someone that they are not empowered to do anything in a certain capacity. They can't prevent their phone number from being stolen. If you're at a carrier, um, at any major carrier, it's, it's kind of difficult. And Allison, I try not to turn this into a Microsoft product pitch too much, but I do have a question about that. What do you okay. think about all the different authenticators out there? We have Azure Authenticator. There's other authenticators out there. What do you think about those as an alternative to you know, SMS type authentication? Oh, yeah. I mean, really, any of them are better. <laughs> uh, any kind of authenticator that does not rely on SMS would be better. Um, but then you run into a different kind of problem. And one of the issues that I've had to deal with with the SIM swap work is that fixing the problem runs up directly counter to the business model sometimes for a company. So it's an extremely hard sell, actually. 
Um, and what I mean by this is like, if you're a company with a very large user base, then you have to serve the public at large. You don't just serve the English speakers. You don't just serve the tech savvy people. You have to serve everybody because if you're trying to sell a product, you don't want to artificially limit your customer base, right? But when you're including hardware tokens and software tokens into the mix, you run up against a problem where the public at large is actually not all that tech savvy. Uh, they also lose things. They are also in unstable situations. So when you distribute hardware and software tokens to people, you also have to think about the business process of how, how do you handle it when people forget their tokens or they lose it or it gets stolen. So yeah. what's that fallback process? And it needs to be easy enough so that you can continue to conduct business but it also needs to be difficult enough that fraud is difficult to conduct. And unfortunately, when you're running that balance between conducting business and preventing fraud, uh, usually the business side wins out, like almost every time. So, well, it does. I was at RSA yeah. Security for almost 14 years. So I dealt in the world of tokens for hardware and software tokens for a very long time. And I can cool. tell you that the adoption rates were quite low believe it or not, um, we had a lot of customers, but the actual percentage of usage of their employees was quite low because of all those convenience things and tokens getting lost and the actual distribution model. So in an interview with Brian Krebs, you said the motivation for data leaks is mostly ego-driven. They want to be the famous hacker. If they have a handle attached to a claim, a name they've used before, that tells me that they want to have a reputation. Can you talk a little about those hidden motivations of attackers? You know, when I talk about security researchers and people in the community doing purpose-driven work, to flip that and talk a little bit about the psychology of the hacker themselves and what they're doing and what their motivation is. Yeah, definitely. So um, a lot of my work and a lot of the foundational research that I've done involves basically reading forums and reading a lot of conversations that hackers have between each other. And by hackers, I mean like criminals, um, people who steal and do fraud for a living. So um, when I read these conversations, I kind of get an idea of where these people are, right? Where they come from in terms of what their perspective is and how they approach life. Um, I really get the sense that there's a lot of ego going on. There's a lot of desire to prove oneself. There's a lot of insecurity among all these people. Um, and a lot of them are not necessarily people I would like if I met them, probably. Uh, so ego is such a big problem among, like with these people. It's usually their downfall. Um, a lot of these threat actors, they are a lot easier to find because of their egos, because they want to be known, they want to be notorious, and on some level they kind of want to be arrested because they think that'll get them a job. So they think that, so let's, let's pull that thread. They think that being arrested will potentially get them a job. Have you, and you don't have to name individuals, right? But have you seen that work out? Oh, so, um, no, (laughs) maybe that was true like 30 years ago, back when nobody knew anything about hacking except for the fraudsters. Uh, but that is so not true now. I mean, the last thing you want is an arrest record for cybercrime if you're going to be doing cybersecurity work. Like, a lot of employers are never going to give you a second look. And then if you have a felony, it's even worse. Like, like yeah. a lot of these threat actors, 
they're really not that skilled either way. Like they might be interested in computer security and they might pick up some things, but like 99% of them, I would never hire like in terms of skill set, even completely forgetting about personality, 99% of them I would never hire. Well, I have two last questions. One, one, one's a fun one. So um, you have a little bit of Hollywood credibility. So um, can you tell me what it was like to work with Vice TV when you did the uh, swapping segment? Oh, yeah. Um, it was a really great crew to work with. Um, it, all, all of this happened at basically the end of last year. Um, they called in and they were like, hey, people said we should talk to you about SIM swapping. And on the first call, I got the sense that like they were kind of bored of the subject. It seemed dry to them. Uh, all they were looking at at the time was like court records and court cases and things like that. So that's going to be kind of dry. And I told them like, hold on, I've got some material for you guys, right? Because they're vice and they like a certain kind of thing. And I showed them all this crazy world on the social side of like what the criminal underground is like. And I showed them uh, the Sim Swap rap songs, which are just as terrible as you can imagine. Um, I showed them the crazy Instagram videos, which um, those party videos actually did make it into the show, um, where they're like dumping thousands of dollars of champagne onto the floor. Um, I told them the crazy stories about how much money these guys have stolen and the crazy self-destructive things that they've done with the money. Um, and then they got pretty excited about the topic after I showed them all this stuff. Um, it's, it, it was a really good experience working with them. And I actually, I really enjoyed um, talking to a group that had an appreciation for the level of crazy that I deal with when I'm looking at the criminal underground. Yeah, I, it, was, it was a good segment. Um, all right, the last thing, we always try to give our listeners some advice. So, you know, folks that aren't necessarily computer savvy, cybersecurity savvy, what's the one or two pieces of advice you would leave them with? Um, collect evidence and keep logs. Uh, if something bad happens <laughs> how to does you. The, how does a consumer do that? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Um, if something bad happens to you and you need to complain about it to somebody, it's really helpful if you have evidence and logs because then it can help that person piece together what was actually going on. So like take screenshots, save copies of emails with the original headers, uh, take pictures of things if they are ephemeral, take like any kind of evidence collection is really, really helpful. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a fascinating conversation, um, and I know our audience is going to get an awful lot of out of it, so I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, and I really enjoyed the conversation. So Allison Nixon was introduced to me by a member of my team who was listening to my program and just said, you really need to meet um, Allison. She would be a fantastic person to interview. And he told me a little bit about Allison's background, and I thought it would add just such a unique dimension to the program to have a security researcher with Allison's skills and with her background on the show that I knew I wanted to get her on. I think the biggest takeaway I had from the episode, a couple of things. One, computer hackers are a unique breed, and we shouldn't spend a lot of time glorifying the work that they do um, the folks that are you know what we call the bad actors right not the folks that are working for, for to try to prevent computer hacking the second thing is that you need to protect yourself um, you know Allison made a very good point that it's not up to third parties necessarily to protect you 
um, if they don't, you know, advertise or um, label their service as a, as a security protection. So you need to really be careful in understanding the technologies you're using. And she also talked about how authenticators, we have the, you know, the Microsoft Azure authenticator, but how authenticators are a much more secure thing to use as opposed to SMS type authentication. And candidly, they're ubiquitous. They're easy to download. You can put them on your phone, no matter what your, you know, your phone OS is. And I would highly encourage people to start using authenticators more than they use other types of um, what we thought was good authentication technology, but clearly has turned out to not be purpose-built for authentication like SMS messages. So to the listeners, thank you for joining me while I spoke with Allison Nixon. And I look forward to um, having you join the next episode of Afternoon Cyber Tea. I'm Ann Johnson. Have a great day. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, we're talking scumbots with Paul Melson. Believe me, you're going to want to hear this. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.